listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. It's so good to worship with y'all. Go ahead and grab a seat. I know, I know the answer to this question, but have you noticed that it's difficult to do difficult things when no one else is doing the difficult thing, right? So uh, maybe an example we can all relate to. And even if, like, if you're like me and you haven't been this person trying to, to do the difficult thing, you can still relate because I can only imagine. But like, let's say it's a really serious example. You go to your favorite Mexican food restaurant and maybe you're just trying to watch their calories a little bit. So you go in and you're saying, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ease off. I'm gonna ease back on the chips and sauce. I'm not gonna get too much queso. But as soon as they bring out the chips and everybody starts diving in, <gasps> You're faced with temptation, right? And then you're thinking, I'm not going to get any queso. But then the waitress or waiter asks someone or asks the table, do you all want some queso? And then someone at the table has the audacity to say, yes, we would love some melted cheese in our mouths, right? So they bring out the queso. It's even more difficult to refrain from grabbing a chip when everybody else is doing it. And you even begin to tell yourself, like, is it really worth it? Does it really matter? I'm just going to give in. I think about some of the youth trips that we've done uh, to different camps or even with college students. And it's always, it's always amazing to see what people will do when they're being encouraged and applauded, right? So maybe they have a fear of heights and they're up on the repelling wall and everybody's like, come on, you can do this. You got this. And all of a sudden they have this courage, right? Or they're, uh, they're nervous. Like we, one time we went to camp and someone had never learned to swim. And so they were going to swim for the first time and they were nervous. But everybody was cheering them on and clapping. And I, it's kind of funny to me, like, what would happen if people were doing the opposite? No, you can't do it. You're going to break your leg if, you, leg if you do the repelling wall. It's not worth it. Like, people wouldn't do it, right? Because the, the tension, the nervousness, the nervousness they already have, then with people going against them, there's no way they would have the courage to do the difficult thing. I don't want y'all to hold this against me. I think you already know this, but, but my wife and I both grew up in the Jacksonville, Florida area. And so we are Jacksonville Jaguars fans who are playing the Cowboys today. Yes, I, I know it's hard to believe Jacksonville is actually, it's actually an NFL team. Okay, you may not believe that or know that. Playing the Cowboys today. So you guys are going down, just saying. Anyways, <laughs> looking forward to that. Lauren actually dressed the kids in their Jaguars jerseys today. So uh, I say that because... We're pretty serious fans, but it's been more difficult to be a serious fan for the Jacksonville Jaguars in Lubbock than it was in Jacksonville, Florida, right? It's just more difficult because there's more pressure to not be a Jaguars fan. Cowboys are our number two fan, our two team. And now like everybody else in Lubbock, the Chiefs are our third, fan, our third team, right? But um, I remember a couple of years ago, Lauren being the avid fan that she is, um, she actually does this every Saturday, but she had on her Jacksonville Jaguars uh, cap her hat on a Saturday and was going through the line at Market Street. And as she's going through the line, this young man says, uh, ma'am, do you, do you know what that hat is? And she said, yes, yeah, it's, it's a Jacksonville Jaguars hat. And he said, oh, I just wasn't sure if you knew what it was because they're terrible. Why would you wear that? <laughs> and because Lauren with a little more sass is like, well, young man, we're going to the Super Bowl, okay? Which Lauren says that every year. I'm like, I, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, okay? Um, but really, we found that there's, the, there's kind of this pressure to, be, to not be a Jaguars fan. So it is, it's a little more difficult. We're standing true, we're standing firm, but the, the pressure to conform is a reality. The same is true for believers in that it's easy 
to come to church and worship and be engaged or go to a Bible study and be engaged in what's going on and worship and with your Christian friends to say, yeah, I believe in these biblical principles. But more and more in America, there's this pressure to conform to secular ideas and to the idea that Jesus is not the savior of the world and this is not God's word. More and more, that is a reality. I know it's, it's, we are a Christian nation. I'm doing air quotes because I think it's hard to define what is a Christian nation. Now, as you look at America, l- less and less people are claiming to follow Jesus. Like, I don't know how you can keep saying we're a Christian nation, founded on it, yes, we're moving away from it. And so more and more, there's this pressure for believers to bow the knee to the ideas of the world. To say, oh, like it's, yeah, I believe in the Bible, but I also want to fit in. It's difficult to stand firm on what we know to be true of Jesus and, and how the world functions because of how God created it. It's difficult to stand firm when everyone else is ridiculing you or mocking you or trying to push you away from following Jesus. Anybody relate to that? I was talking with some friends, like the reality is, it, I think for a long time we've said, well, one day that's coming in America, maybe our grandkids. I, I think it's not just our grandkids, like we are gonna experience that. We're already beginning to experience it. Even here in, thank the Lord, it's a conservative place, good old conservative Lubbock, Texas. Even here, we're seeing the pressures more and more and more. If there are three guys that could relate to that pressure of living in a secular society, a, a godless society, but trying to follow God, three guys that could certainly relate to that, are from Daniel chapter three, where we're gonna to be today, Rack, Shack, and Benny, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know if there's any VeggieTales fans out there, so I had to say that. But we're gonna be in Daniel chapter three, looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their story. And just a little context of what was going on. These three young men grew up in Jerusalem, grew up in Judah, and when it was, cap- uh, when it was conquered by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar carried off a lot of the uh, intelligent, um, high prospect teenagers, carried them off to Babylon to try to pull them into his culture and really brainwash them into believing in the ways of Babylon. From Genesis chapter 11 on, Babylon is known as a godless society, meaning godless is they don't follow the God of the Bible. They worship lots of idols. Even the king sometimes saw himself as a God. It was a tough, rough place to live if you were trying, trying to follow the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was not a place that you would say, you know what, honey, let's pack up the kids. This is a great Christian place to raise your, our family. No, you wouldn't take them to Babylon. That's exactly where our boys find themselves in this story today. If you know the context, they had been at this point, Daniel 3, had been kind of rising in the ranks in the, in the government under King Nebuchadnezzar, but they were still every day faced with the pressures of that society and with trying to follow God. Recognize this, this story is thousands of years old, but probably a lot more relevant than we'd be apt to give credit for it. Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and nine feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You reckon they did? Absolutely. Like how terrified would you be? If you don't fall down and worship, you're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace. And think about that, what, a, what a flip-flop of a day that was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're there at the Capitol. They get home from work and grinding it out at the Capitol all day. And they're getting ready for this major event. It's the event of the year. They're going to see the unveiling of the king's statue. So they're getting all their fancy robes on. They're excited to go and they're talking to each other. Man, Shadrach, I can't wait to hear the orchestra. It's going to be amazing. And man, I bet to go. I can't wait to see the king's statue. It's going to be amazing. And they, they begin to walk out there and they're just this mass of people walking towards this statue that nine stories tall casts this uh, incredible statue, oh, excuse me, incredible shadow over them. And they're just in awe of this statue. And as they're standing there, this herald says, hey, this amazing statue, we're going to play some music. And if you don't bow to the statue and worship the statue and the king, when you hear the music, we're going to throw you in this furnace over here. Now question, it's not rhetorical, why would that be a tension point for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why can't they just bow down like everybody else to avoid the fire? Why, why can't they? Yeah, there's only one God. If you think back to Exodus chapter 20, God says, you should have no other gods before me. You, shouldn't, you can't make idols. There's only one true God. So if they bow down to this statue, they're conforming to the expectations of the government and society, but in so doing, they're denying God. They're, they're turning their backs on the Lord. We, we, can you imagine the tension of that moment? Like how, how easy it would be to just go, ah, oh, it's no big deal. Let's just, let's just, let's just T-bow real quick, right? Like how, how easy it would be to just conform and, and not want to, not want to be thrown into the fire and even on a lesser level, not, not want to stand out. We, but we know from what the rest of the story we're going to read in a second that they chose to not bow. They chose to stand. Can you imagine the tension in their hearts and their minds as they stood there? I'm, I'm just kind of using my imagination, like seeing them kind of look at each other like, are we going to do this? Music plays and they just stand there. So imagine this field of everybody bowing down and only those three are left standing, <laughs> right? Like terrifying. I, I can't help but think like they're wondering, is it worth it? Like where is God going to be when we're standing up and everybody sees us? Like, is it worth it? And where's God gonna be at? Like, what would you do in that moment? 
Maybe a better question, what, what do you do? As far as I know, like no one in this room has faced exactly what they faced of, hey, if you don't bow down, you're gonna be thrown in this furnace. But we still face similar pressures to conform to a godless society. Maybe it's to conform to this idea of compartmentalizing your faith. Hey, look, you know what? You can, you can be religious, you can worship Jesus, but keep that to yourself. Just you know, go to church on Sunday. You can talk about Jesus with your small group, but you keep that to yourself. Don't let it impact the rest of your life. Well, if you conform to that idea, that ideology, you're in a sense bowing to the ways of the world instead of bowing to Jesus. Because Jesus calls us to give him our all, to live our life wholly for him in every aspect and area of our life. Do you bow or do you stand? The world tells us to conform to this idea of universalism that, that always lead to God. Which, by the way, if that's true, then God is either a liar, why would you want to follow God if he's a liar, or he's very confused if all these very different types of religions all lead back to him. No, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through what? Through him, through Jesus. The world tells us, hey, you know, it's all, it's all the same. This is the idea of universalism. Do you bow to that and just say, yeah, whether it be Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or uh, New Age, we're all going to get there. Do you bow to that or do you stand? You know what? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You can do that in love, but do you stand? You know, the reality is we're all going to be faced. We are faced with those questions. And the question is, when you do, is it worth it? Like what happens when you stand for the Lord and you stand for the, your biblical convictions? And where is God in that moment when you're standing and it looks like no one else is there? When you do that, people are going to call you out. When you stand for your convictions, when you stand for the Lord, it's going to irritate people. That's what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 8 says, Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage in this province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. I mean, talk about some punks, right? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not out there protesting. They're just out there, you know what, we're not going to bow. We're here, we support the king, but we're not going to bow to this. And these Chaldeans, these other Babylonians come and call them out on it. They go, they're tattling on these guys. When you live for God, even if you're not shoving other things, shoving the gospel, shoving God's word down their face, if you live by your convictions, it's going to irritate people and they're going to tattle on you. That's the reality of the world that we're living in. It's becoming more and more that way, even here in America. It, it irritates people when you have convictions. Frustrates them. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to call you out. Can you believe Corbin? <laughs> Corbin believes the Bible's God's word. Okay, bro. Can you believe Katie? She, she, she thinks that, that Jesus is actually 
the savior of the world and that, like, that going and being part of a church community is important. Okay, yeah, that's a waste of time. <laughs> you know, even, it's been like this for a long time, but it seems like it's just escalating. If you decided, I'm gonna live true to God's biblical standards of sexual purity, meaning that sex is a good gift from God, but it's for a man and a woman in a marriage, in a covenant relationship. When you, if you hold to that, if you cling to that, you'll be mocked. You'll be called out. Old school, whatever. They're, they're going to make fun of you. Are you going to bow to that concept? Or are you going to cling to, no, I know what God's word says to be true, and I'm going to stand for him. And when you do stand, when you do say, yes, I do believe this is God's word. Yes, I do believe I want to live the way God tells me to live. Is it worth it? Like, there's going to be repercussions for it. Is it worth it? And where is God going to be in that moment when you stand for him? Even as a parent, like, it's crazy that the world is getting this way. There's, I haven't seen it. There's a show on television that's been advertised about the different parenting styles and basically like how one style of let your kids do and be whatever they want and you don't give them any direction or like being there's probably also the complete opposite of like helicopter complete control freak but the reality is God's word tells us as parents to be intentional with our children to invest in them to 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 nurture them in the ways of the Lord and if you do that if you take that call seriously to to see your child as a that you are a steward of your child they're the Lord's you want to honor him with your child the world is going to mock you for that. Oh, come on. Go be a control freak. Let your kid do what they want. Who cares? If you take God's call on your life as a parent seriously, the world is going to ridicule you for that. Is it worth it? Do you stick up for those convictions or do you just say, ah, whatever, maybe everybody else is right? When you do, it just, it probably just creates more anger. When you stand for the truth, it just creates more rage. Verse 13 says, Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? I can see him beginning to pace. Now, if you're ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, I'm like, by the way, can we just say orchestra? Do we have to say every instrument every single time, right? When you hear all these instruments, every kind of music, you must fall. Worship. By the way, verse 15 says, if you're ready. He's, he's implying, hey, maybe, maybe you guys weren't ready this time. I'm going to make sure you're ready. It's go time. You're going to bow this time. He says, if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? And Nebuchadnezzar has an ego, this is an ego trip, right? This is some pride and arrogance. He says, boys, no one can save you from my hand. What God could possibly rescue you from a powerful king like me? It's what he's saying to these guys. And think about the, the tension of that moment. What do you do? Do you stand up and say, well, we believe God can rescue us? Or do you just say, okay, never mind. You know, there's some moments when you're before authority that you just treat their question like a rhetorical question. You don't really respond. Like sometimes it just, you just want to tell these guys, hey, just roll with it. Like Nebuchadnezzar's angry. You don't have to respond. Just say, okay, and just bow. Like, is it really worth responding and bowing? It makes you think about when, uh, 
I first came to Southcrest, I was the middle school pastor, and all the services were in here. There wasn't a venue, and uh, during the invitation time, I would normally stand right down here to receive people when they responded, and the youth group often was in the very front few rows, and I remember my first few weeks here, there was a, a couple of students. Now, like, these students are, are married and have children of their own. But my first few weeks, they would sit there during the invitation and try to make me laugh as I stood before the whole church, right? Not cool, guys, okay? Cecily Bailey, wherever you are, Cecily Parrish. Um, but I remember I had, I had this thought, okay, if Ken Carter, my boss at the time, if Ken asked me why I'm laughing during the invitation or if Pastor David asked me, not because they're mean, but just because they're my authority, I'm not gonna try to explain away what was going on. I'm just gonna go, uh, sorry, sir, it won't happen again, right? It's not worth the tension of, of getting in trouble. That's kind of how I feel with these guys right here. Like Nebuchadnezzar is about to blow a gasket. You almost wanna tell them, guys, it'll be okay. There's grace, there's forgiveness. Just give in, but that's not what they do. It says Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Can't you just see his veins beginning to pop out of his neck as he's listening to these words and these shakes? And they decide to not stop there. They turn the dial up just a little bit more. They say, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Man, that's some boldness. King, no matter what you do, we're gonna be true and faithful to God. We're not going to bow. I, I, I wanna say, where is God in this? They're, they're fixing me, thrown to the furnace. Where, where is God? And is it worth them giving their life? Why be so bold if it's gonna cost you your life? Like why stand for the truth of God's word that, that marriage is for a man and a woman and that God is not for homosexuality? Why stand for that if you're gonna lose your job or be ridiculed or Lord forbid one day be put in jail? Like where's God in that moment when you're standing and saying, in love, hey, that's, that's not okay. By the way, you can love people and also not love their lifestyle. Go track them with that. If you're not sure what that looks like, just read the gospels. Jesus did it perfectly. He stood for truth, but he always did it in love. Like, where is God when in our society, you're called a bigot for believing that gender is not a matter of choice, but it's a matter of how you were created. That No, it's not about, how you feel that particular year. No, like God made you a man or a woman. Like, is it worth standing up for that if you're gonna be ridiculed and mocked, called a bigot and lose your job? What about our brothers and sisters around the world who are losing their lives, who their homes are being destroyed, their churches are being burned down for, for pursuing Jesus and following him? And, and they're not even, they're not causing wars. They're just, they, they're just simply saying, I love Jesus and they're losing their lives for it. Where is God in the midst of that and is it really worth it? Is it really worth doing the right thing at work when you could just, ah, no one will see it'll be okay? Is it really worth sharing the gospel with your friends or your neighbors or your family when you know it could cost that relationship? Where's God when you're trying to be faithful? 
things just seem to keep getting worse. This is what happened with, with these three guys. Verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, you just thought he was mad. Now he's filled with rage. The expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So you can see his face turning red. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, as if the furnace was not already hot enough. And he commanded some of his best soldiers to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Hopeless, alone, and done. Why be so bold when the pressures of society push you to conform if it's just going to cost you your life or if you're going to be alone? Where's God in that moment? You can almost see Nebuchadnezzar still breathing hard, sit back on his throne and huffing and puffing. Show those fools. Teach them to, to question my authority. Teach them to not bow to, to my commands. Teach them to not give in to the rest of society. Show those fools. But, but then as he looks, some, something catches his eye. What? He squints. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, hey, hey did, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Different scholars go back and forth on exactly what was going on here. Maybe this was a Christophany, meaning a physical appearance of Jesus before the incarnation, which the incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas. Could have been that, or it could be an angel. I lean towards a Christophany. Whatever the case, this was a physical demonstration that God was with them. That his presence was right there with them. Them. Listen, friends, where is God when you're in the fiery furnace of a godless society? Where is he as you stand firmly for him? Where is he? He's right there with you. In the midst of the tragedy, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the persecution, he's right there with you. And, and look at the effect it had on Nebuchadnezzar. It says, he approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called out, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you servants of the most high God. I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar was what we would call a Christian, a believer yet, but something was going on in his heart where he goes, okay, I didn't think any God could save someone from that furnace, but clearly your God is the most high God. There's no one bigger or better or stronger than him. So it says they came out of the fire. And I, I just, I, maybe I'm just immature, but I envision them when they, it says they came out of the fire. You know how in an action movie when the, the good guy, the hero is walking away and the building's blowing up in the background, he 
never turns around. Like that's how these guys are walking out, right? Like they never even look back at this fire. They come out unscathed. It says that when they saw the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation or language, who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. Again, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have some extreme consequences pretty often. <laughs> For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. And the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God used their boldness to break down barriers of unbelief. And I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was a, saved at that point. If you read the rest of the story, he still had some pretty serious pride issues. But they're he used their boldness to break down barriers of unbelief. And, and listen, the point of the story says they were rewarded. The point is not that, hey, if you stand for God and you don't worry about what the culture says, you just live for him. The point is not that your life will go perfectly and now you get rich and now you're promoted. No, that's not the point. The point is that God is faithful in the fire, that he's always with you. And part of the way we know that's the point and not that, oh, you get, get to become rich is because of their response earlier in the story when they said, whether God chooses to save us or not, and we know he can, whether he does or not, we're not gonna bow. And the idea is, it's because God is worth it. It's like Paul says in the New Testament, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And Paul says in Philippians chapter one, like, hey, if I live, I get to be with other believers. I get to enjoy God's presence here and and living out his kingdom work. And if I die, I get to be in his presence. So either way, it's all good. That was their perspective. Hey, even if we die, we're gonna get to be with God. And that's what matters. No matter what, God is with us. If, if you're like wanting to lean over to your friend right now and be like, hey, did someone forget to tell Brandon it's supposed to be a Christmas sermon? <laughs> No, this is, it's a Christmas sermon. That's what Christmas is about. God with us. See, Christmas is not, it's not that God sent, you know what, I need to send them some contraption to help with their problems. No, he sent himself. He sent Jesus to come and deliver us, to save us, to rescue us, to be with us. Because what we need is not more stuff. What we need is God. His presence with us changes everything. No matter what the world throws us, no matter the pressures of the world to conform, to deny God and, and to embrace the, the ideologies of the world, no, no matter what, as we stand firm, trusting him, we know he's with us. There's a missionary, John G. Patton, who years ago went to the New Hebrides Island, Islands, him and his, uh, at that time, uh, wife and they'd just been married and he was going to share the gospel of the New Hebrides to the people there. It was a group of cannibals. Actually, there was missionaries from England that went to these islands first and within moments of being on the islands, the cannibals killed and ate them. 
But John G. Patton from Scotland, knowing that, still said, hey, we're going to take the gospel to him. So it went and, and shared the gospel there. And multiple times, uh, his life was almost taken from him. His wife did die, I believe, from disease there on the islands. But they, multiple times, they pursued him and tracked him and tried to kill him. It, if, if you need a last-minute Christmas gift for uh, someone you know who's a Christian, incredible book. It's just the autobiography of John G. Patton, a missionary to the New Hebrides. It's quite entertaining. Even, I think I've shared this before, but one time uh, the, the cannibals had gathered around his hut, had gathered around his house, and <clears throat> he knew he could not escape. He had no weapons. He didn't want to use a weapon. He was there to share the gospel. And so he prayed, Lord, you've got to protect me. Either you're going to rescue me or I'm going to die either way. Or there's nothing I can do. So after praying, he walked out of his front door into this circle of villagers who were there to kill him. And here's what he said. Y'all, since I've been here, have been so rude. <laughs> True, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but literally this is what happened. He said, y'all have been so inhospitable. Y'all have tried to kill me since the time I got here. No one has welcomed me. And they laid down their weapons and they apologized. <laughs> now, like weeks later, they tried to kill him again. But there's, there's crazy stories. Definitely a good read. But at one time, as you read this autobiography, it tells about a time where one of the chiefs from one of the villages came to him and said, hey, uh, these men are coming after you tonight. They're going to try to kill you. You need to hide in, uh, he pointed out a tree to him, you need to hide there so that they won't find you and kill you. Sorry. There we go. And this is an excerpt he, he wrote about uh, his experience in that tree. It says, being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends. So again, the context there is this chief told him to go hide in the tree and he's going, I don't know, is the chief just trying to kill me too? I don't know, right? Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. <clears throat> I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of guns and the yells of the people below. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow. As I told I'm a heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to fill again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then. Here's the reality. If you know Jesus Christ, you have a friend like that. That no matter what you face, he is with you in the fire. So even as the orchestra of the world cranks up the volume and the pressure for us to conform, we can be bold and stand for Christ because we know he is with us. In a minute, we're gonna stand and sing and have a time to respond. There'll be some folks back at the back and back at the coffee center that would love to pray with you, talk with you. But before we do that, before we respond, I wanna read a prayer to you from... Uh, Pastor Scotty Smith 
in light of Daniel 3. It says, Dear Heavenly Father, I'm intrigued, convicted, and encouraged by the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How refreshing to behold such a bold, unwavering, non-utilitarian love for you. These three friends worshipped you, not because of the gifts you give, but because of the God that you are. They were firmly convinced that you could rescue them from the fiery furnace, but even if you didn't rescue them, it would have no effect on their worship of you. They would rather be delivered into your presence through the fire than worship some other false god just to escape the fire. Lord Jesus, you alone can give me this kind of heart freedom and transforming love for God. The gospel is the only power sufficient for this kind of heart work. You were the fourth man, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw walking around in the fiery furnace and you endured the fiery trial of the cross that whether we live or die, we are safe, beloved and at peace. You will never leave or forsake us at any time or in any trial. Because of you, Jesus, we don't have to be afraid to die and we don't have to be afraid to live. May your beauty and grace be so compelling that the very moment we're tempted to turn to some false god or idol for temporal deliverance or instant relief, we won't. We praise you for endless mercies and sufficient grace for this and every day. You know, the, the baby in the manger the same God that was with these three men. What kind of savior would Jesus be if he was only with you on the silent nights when all is calm and all is bright? <laughs> now see, Jesus is the savior who's, who's in you, who's with you in the furnace when all is dark and nothing seems right. God is with if you were encouraged by today's message subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts to learn more about the venue at southcrest visit us online at southcrest.org or on facebook and instagram by searching for southcrest baptist church 